Welcome to the journey of an esthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Uh, Robert Pippin, welcome to our show, podcast, uh, The Journey of an Esthete. Thank you. I'm, I'm really delighted to have you on the show um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first reason is that I've been reading your work, I think, since as far back as um, modernism as a philosophical problem. <laughs> well, that, does, uh, that does date you a bit. <laughs> well... I'm 54, so no, but I, I okay. really, I've been trying to get you on the show because I really think that, uh, you know, your scholarship, research, your work in its entirety really relates to one of my themes on the podcast. Because after, after, after all, we talk about what, what it means to be human, and I guess uh, way of introducing you, you're one of the foremost, if I may say so, um, Scholars of Hegel, Cotton Hegel, mm-hmm. and you also have many books on the arts. And this is this is most unusual. Uh, the only other person I can think of who's written as much and as as fluently and diverse, diversely about the arts was uh, maybe Stanley Cavell. But you've written on westerns. You've written on film noir. You have a recent book on Douglas Sirk. Um, mm-hmm. You've even written on. Um, Oh, so, so many, so many wonderful filmmakers, and and I really like your book on Henry James a lot. Henry James and Modern Moral Life, and your most recent book, which I finished for this uh, episode, is uh, Philosophy by Other Means: Arts, right. Arts and Philosophy, and Philosophy in the Arts. Um, so there's a lot there uh, in your career and your in your writing to to. Um, to tackle. So if we can begin, maybe I, I sometimes like to do a uh, kind of a linear chronology, which is a, a fancy way of saying personal biography. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, you're at University of Chicago now, I'm wondering how you came to be the kind of uh, thinker and writer you are, what brought you to Cotton Hagel or what brought you to uh, writing about classic Hollywood movies or, you know, or Henry James or whatever comes to your mind that you want to talk about in terms of your, your story with that. Um, well, uh, let's see. I, I, uh, I went to college at uh, Trinity college in Hartford, Connecticut, and I was an English major there. Um, and very, very involved with, uh, modernist literature, James Proust, Faulkner, Eliot. Um, but in my junior year, I started taking philosophy courses and, uh, I became much more interested in um, oh, the, the kind of uh, approach to basic philosophical problems in the in the German tradition, starting with starting with Kant and going all the way up through Heidegger and right. and beyond. Uh, so at the very last minute, I decided to go to graduate school in philosophy, and there weren't there weren't many graduate schools in the United States where one could study um, the German tradition in philosophy. Uh, but Penn State was one of them. It was a very unusual department, sort of a marginal department at the time um, in the American Academy anyway, although well-known in Europe. Um, uh, and then, you know, when you go to graduate school and you, you write a dissertation, I wrote mine on Kant. Um, I didn't, I, it wasn't as if I'd lost the interest I had in the arts, but, um, you know, professionally, when you identify yourself with a subfield with a dissertation, you get hired in that subfield, and then you're expected to teach courses in that subfield. Um, so 
you know, it wasn't anything I, I, I found onerous. I, I loved uh, writing about the German tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, professionally, um, it wouldn't have been fair to my department if I'd started teaching courses in film or uh, history of painting or, <laughs> or literature in general. Um, I, I would have been sort of shirking my responsibilities. But uh-huh. in uh, 19, 1991, I got an invitation to join the Committee on Social Thought here at the University of Chicago, and that was sort of permission permission to join uh, what for me was academic heaven. Um, I, I had no, I had no uh, sort of subfield responsibilities. I was, I was also, I also joined the philosophy department, um, but uh, my position is in the committee on social thought. So that's the unit to whom I owe my first responsibility. Um, and it wasn't long before I realized I should take advantage of this. And I began working on, on a kind of philosophical book about Henry James and so that was that was the beginning. I mean, it was really the permission to do whatever I wanted to do right. uh, when I was lucky enough to come to the Committee on Social Thought. Um, may, and then we uh, hold that thought. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a brief question because that that committee is is somewhat famous, isn't that committee connected to the same department that had at one time Saul Bellow and Hannah Arendt, or, or is that a, is that a yes, different? Right. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, right, right. Bellow was a colleague of mine when I first arrived. I got to know him a little bit. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And then we've also had um, poets like Mark Strand and uh, novelists like the Nobel Prize winner John Kutsey as colleagues in the committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we have we have very good poet um, Rosanna Warren um, in the Committee on Social Thought. So we've always had um, – literary figures, um, anthropologists, um, classical scholars, uh, German and French literature experts, uh, philosophers, um, psychoanalysts, theologians. Yeah. Uh, so it uh, really is a kind of ideal interdisciplinary environment. And all of us who are primarily appointed by the committee have responsibilities only to to the committee, which is to teach whatever we like. Mm. Uh, the film interest was always a, a very, very serious interest of mine. Um, first in European films, so-called arts, art cinema in Europe. Um, but I got, thanks to a colleague of mine who got me interested in them, um, I got really interested in American Hollywood film uh, uh, in the way that the French did, that, that these were really serious works. They weren't just commercial vehicles. So I was offered an opportunity um, to do a series of lectures at, at Yale called the Castle Lectures oh. on some aspect of uh, political thought. And because I had been used to, at the committee to doing whatever I wanted, I asked them if they would mind if I gave a series of lectures on Hollywood Westerns. Uh, I think they were a little non- you, is that Is that when you first worked on the yes. essay on Liberty Valance? Yeah, yeah. Because okay. I want to talk yeah, that, a little bit about that film, if you don't mind. Later on, we don't have to now, but sure. I wanted to ask you questions sure. about it. But So, yeah, you, that's interesting. And so what do they say to that when you when you – well, they said, you know, you know, you're going to have to have dinner with the guy who endows the lecture series. And it's, you know, we've had Habermas and Rawls. And, you know, oh. I said, well, yeah, if you don't mind, I don't mind. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so I, gave, I gave the lecture series. And then I had another invitation from Virginia to do the same thing. Uh, and I asked them if I could do film noir, and, uh, problems of agency in film noir. And uh, they didn't mind either. And so then I got really interested in writing about about film. Cavell was a great inspiration for me, um, as well as the Cahiers de Cinema, the French critics in the 50s and 60s. <clears throat> so it just, it was these two events, being able to come to the committee, having had a background in literature from college, and then being asked to give these lectures and having people who invited me nice enough to let me do what I wanted. 
um, that gave me the opportunity to pursue these interests that I wouldn't have been able to pursue had I been sort of locked into a traditional subfield in an academic department. So there's a sense in which the trajectory of your career, teaching, thinking, writing is connected to Hegelian themes, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Both Hegelian and also, you know, there's Nietzsche's use of uh, Greek tragedy and the birth of tragedy, Heidegger's use of Hölderlin and Rilke. Um, those, Those philosophers are always the ones that interested me. And I was always interested in their refusing to consider literature a marginal or merely a sort of decorative form of philosophy um, and was able to work on that in that tradition uh, philosophically. And then when I came here, was able to do something of what they did with uh, the arts. Do you mind me asking you a up, more up-to-date question because it concerns your latest book? Uh-huh. Uh, if you wanted to discuss to a layperson, say – an outsider or someone that isn't that well-versed in Hegel or some of these topics to try to capture the, the strong responses to tragedy as an art, because your first essay concerns tragedy and how people, Khan and other people responded very, you know, yeah. shook up their world. What is it about tragedy as a form that had this effect or does have this effect? Is If that's too broad a question, you can... Um, no, I think it's quite an interesting question because um, one of the reasons um, one one thinks of literature and the arts and film as possibly having a bearing on philosophy is that philosophy, however kind of capacious its its scope is, a lot of philosophers think they they know everything about everything. Um, uh, however capacious, philosophy also has its own limitations. Um, it, it, you know, in the sort of traditional sense of the, the logical analysis of concepts. Yeah. Um, or the logical analysis of language, however one wants to put it, um, there are things that fall outside that that human beings want to think about uh, seriously and deeply and reflectively, but don't fit this sort of pattern of philosophy that's evolved since Socrates, kind of right, right. Necessary, sufficient conditions for... But there are a lot of concepts like uh, jealousy or revenge or resentment or um, despair or tragedy, that philosophy has, uh, what tragedy really suggests is that there are fundamental human conflicts that lead to a kind of suffering that doesn't make any overall sense. And for philosophy, that doesn't make sense. There isn't anything that doesn't make some sort of sense. So the idea that we confront in our lives uh, failures um, that seem to us um, in some way fated and without any kind of normative redemption. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't mean things like plane crashes or something. I mean things we do to ourselves right. and those we're very close to uh, that are outside the realm of what philosophy can help us with as philosophy has traditionally been understood. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think what philosophers first try to do is domesticate tragedy. Hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like, for example, Hegel is a perfect example of this. Um, Hegel really argued perhaps more eloquently than anybody that philosophy is impoverished if it doesn't rely on another way of presenting the issues that matter to philosophy in a form that has a kind of affective and sensible meaningfulness mm-hmm. rather than conceptual meaningfulness. Yes. But when it came to the tragedy, um, you know, like the tragedy of Antigone or the, the conflict between Creon and Antigone that's unresolvable, mm-hmm. um, Hegel wants to treat that as temporary. Let's say as as uh, provisional, 
that once the Greek experience of the political um, had been transcended and finally into the modern world, uh, that that the, the tragic sensibility was no longer relevant. Um, but that's a, that's a typical example of a philosopher, try, as I say, trying to domesticate tragedy to 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 make the what it confronts us with the, the very painful things it confronts us with that we can't avoid um, more acceptable, more sort of rationally integrable into an ordered form of life, and it isn't <laughs> integrable. Um, so uh, philosophers, I think, tragedy is one of the examples where philosophy need, needs another way of understanding meaningfulness in human life that isn't a, a function of, of following a norm or a moral law or a, a, a kind of ethical ideal. Um, there are aspects of human life that those things aren't relevant to, and uh, we need these imaginative geniuses to help us understand them. That's interesting. So you're saying that the, that the work that someone like Henry James does in fictions um, is actually... There's there's a um, I don't say utility. There's there's a there's a um, uh, it's it's there's almost a necessity in terms of human human yes. under self understanding, right? Or, or, or consciousness. Exactly. Um, exactly. I wanted exactly. want you to mention something about Hegel and freedom because there's a, there's a, in your also in your I think it's in your most no it's in practical philosophy, which is a, I think one of the best books on Hegel. If I may say so, and I and I think I think it, you know, um, you make a point that Hegel, I think it's in Phenomenology of Spirit, doesn't have a negative definition of freedom. Is that he's very exacting about what freedom is, right? So yeah. it isn't a matter yeah. of of the freedom to say no to some inner desire or some action. Do you mind talking a little bit about his his special notion of freedom or his, his um, no no I don't I don't at all I mean he's he's often misunderstood um, okay. he's, he's, Berlin in other words ascribed to him a kind of positive notion of freedom in which um, some some agency like the state uh, knows what it is to live a free life even if you don't it's like you know the People's Democratic Republic of East Germany or something. Right. Um, Democratic, not by virtue of people voting, but by what they would vote for were they non-alienated right, right. in a way, regime, you know, that kind of thing. But that, so, and he so also accused talking, of, I should say, tell the audience, you're talking about Isaiah Berlin's uh, misunderstanding of that tradition, or, yes, or Hegel. Yes. Is that connected to the, at that time, the gap between Anglo-American analytic philosophy? Yeah, very much very much so. Very much so. This had to do really with the destruction of the reputation of, of Hegel, both in huh. Anglophone philosophy and the first half of the 20th century um, because of the revolution that analytic philosophy wanted to bring to Russell and Moore and Wittgenstein and so forth. Yeah. Um, but also after the war, um, a lot of scholars, intellectual historians, political theorists, we're trying to figure out what, what could have possibly gone wrong in Germany. One of the most advanced, literate, scientifically capable, um, politically stable up till the 1920s um, countries in Europe. Uh, and this tradition of um, thinkers like Hegel, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Heidegger, that, was, uh, that became a kind of target. And Hegel was accused of not valuing sufficiently 
the individual, individual human right, that he wanted to sort of suck all that up into some sort of organic whole and treat individuals as merely properties of some ethical substance. Right. Um, so they didn't, they didn't count as having the moral weight they did in the liberal democratic tradition. But what, what Hegel was essentially trying to say is just having the capacity um, to do what you want to do unimpeded by the will of others mm-hmm. in a way that gives them a like capacity to do what they want to do as long as they don't interfere with what you want to do is much too limited a conception of freedom because how people's wants, mm-hmm. their interests and their desires, how they're formed um, is uh, that's really a very short-sighted view of it, you know. So sure. at, at the end of a long process of social socialization, education, right. acculturation, and so forth, so that if we're if we're what what freedom really means is is being able to identify, that is to say, affirm, see yourself in the life you're living. I mean, in other words, you can you can freely go to the factory, uh, so it's chicken processing plant or something. Nobody forces you to. You could quit, mm-hmm. but you, you don't see that life as a human life, as anything you would recognize as the life you want to live. Now, of course, there's a great deal of necessity in human life. You can't, you know, we, we, we are finite beings who have to accept a lot of things we would normally, normally not want to accept. But um, it, it does seem a rather limited conception of freedom just to think of it as non-interference. Right, of course. Consistent with the non-interference of everyone else in a like manner. There has to be a way of understanding a life that isn't, in the classical sense, alienated, even though it's freely chosen in the sense that nobody holds a gun to your head. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's fascinating to me how, how Hegel's been beaten up for so many things, and, and, and it seems to me uh, twisted to the opposite of what he meant uh, in many, many mm-hmm. instances. I think, you, I think you would agree with that, right? He's, he, gets, he, gets yes, blamed, yeah. he gets blamed for all sorts of things. Um, I don't even think yeah, I, yeah. Could, I could list them all here, but but you're saying, um, well, freedom itself is abused, right? Of course, it's captured by you know, as you know. Yeah. I guess right now, freedom is a is used by the political right wing, right? I, I think um, it seems to me now. Yeah, but I don't know. Very much. We live in the age of so-called neoliberalism, um, which which is the kind of absolutization of this notion of non-interference. People should be maximally left alone to do whatever they want, as if what they want and how they live is uninfluenced by very powerful forces that have a stake in them developing a certain kind of interest useful for those who profit off it. So, uh, you know, it's a very short-sighted notion, but we now live, I think, in an age of globalization in, mm-hmm. in the triumph of neoliberalism, in the triumph of this very narrow and, I think, ideologically suspect since it serves the interests of some very powerful interests for us to think this way, that that's what freedom consists in, simply being maximally left alone. And even if being left alone means other people are going to get sick. Wow. We're spreading spreading germs that we shouldn't be spreading. Well, that's just too bad. That's the price of freedom. But that's crazy. That's like saying you have the right to drive drunk. (laughs) Yeah, so you're saying that this gets to the, you're saying that Hegel's philosophy is practical. Yeah, yeah the formulation you just said about you know, well, being drunk on the road is something we don't want. There's a there's a kind of practicality to that. I have to yeah, after all right. So yeah, I mean you have to you, you have to be concerned with what Hegel called uh, ethical life, 
um, you know, the relationship within a society of the family, education, the workplace, um, you know, small organizations, cultural units, um, you, you can't, all of that contributes to what it is to live a free life, mm-hmm. to see your life as your own mm-hmm. rather than what's just required of you to make money. Um, is that connected a lot of people, to, is that a whole other thought, is that connected to when Hegel's notion of recognition, yeah, exactly. genuine recognition, right? Is it? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the great ideal of this post-Hegelian political tradition is that no one is completely free unless everyone is free. Um, because the lack of, um, uh, the free status of others means that their acknowledgement of you or their relationship to you in general is not what it ought to be, given that they're not able to really be free responders, uh, partners in the adventure of life, right? Everyone, however you want to put it. We need other, other people for a kind of moral, uh, balance in our lives, a way of assuring ourselves that we're, we're on the right path, that we're not um, deceiving ourselves and so forth. But we can't have that if we are recognized by people whom we don't recognize as equals because we think of them as in the grip of unfree forces. So um, you, you only, according to Hegel, can really establish yourself as the being you want to be if you're also taken to be that being by others. Uh-huh. Otherwise, you're living a kind of fantasy life. And if, if, if you don't find yourself reflected in your own view of yourself in the way people treat you, then it becomes a very frustrating and dead-end kind of way of living. But they can't be your recognizers unless they're free to do so. Mm-hmm. That's certainly true. It makes me think of your work on Portrait of a Lady. If you don't mind talking about individual Sure. Joel works because you, you, of course, gave a lecture on Portrait of a Lady. And you, um, I mean, there's a lot of James we could discuss what Maisie knew, which you write about in your newest book. And um, mm-hmm. but I but I for some reason, I'm thinking of Isabel Archer and Osmond and those characters. And what what comes to your mind when you think about that novel and what it's what it's one of the many things it's saying in connection with what well, we're discussing now? One thing that does come to mind is this topic we've just been talking about. Isabel, um, her ideal is to be a free woman. Uh, she has all this money, and she thinks being free is making sure she doesn't do what everyone expects her to do. Mm-hmm. So marrying Osman, whom everybody basically can see, is kind of a creep, um, self-interested Manipulative. This all turns out to be true as she finds out mm-hmm. to her horror two-thirds of the way uh, through the novel. But she marries him because she thinks it's, it's bold, it's free. I mean, she, she has this image of herself of just charging into the night in a carriage with horses, and, mm-hmm. you know, a, a kind of, a kind of uh, uh, authenticity, a notion of freedom, that she's her own person and she's not going to do what everybody else wants them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, she, uh, she finds out that um, uh, she had no idea what she was doing, who Osmond was, what world she was entering. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful exchange between her and Madame Merle. Um, the, fam- the famous but- exchange, which I take to be uh, actually a metaphor for the oldest debate in the arts between, right, between form and artifice and, and authenticity, right? Is that kind of the way, to, one way to... Yeah, well, she tells Madame Merle, when Madame Merle is telling her something about, about how she should dress and what her clothes are, she says, I don't care anything about 
about my clothes right. or my house or anything like that. I just, you know, I very much the young authenticity person. And, um, yeah. Madame Merle says, no, I, I believe just the opposite. I believe you're expressed in every gesture you make in the social world That's that right. gathers to it recognition from others as who you want to be thought of. Right. And Elizabeth said, well, I don't care anything about that. And she, she, I don't care about my clothes. And Madame Merle says, should you want to go without them? <laughs> you know, you, there, there's no, there's no way in other words yeah, to, right. to avoid kind of, uh, social struggle for status and recognition. I'm wondering uh, how classmates respond to when if when you te- if you teach this novel what the different responses you've gotten to Portrait of a Lady or how, what what speaks to well, about it. Well, it's, it's it's sort of the same kind of problem in teaching Madame Bovary. Uh, the students think um, she's really kind of stupid in marrying Osmond, and then they're really really bothered when she goes back to him in the end. That's I think the main reaction of contemporary students. We're, we're much more used to the idea of divorce and uh, sure. separation and so forth. And they can't understand. It is a great question. They can't understand why, having found out what a rat he is, mm-hmm. she goes back. And mm-hmm. she says she goes back to him because, you know, it's sort of I've made my bed. I'm going to lie in it. I'm not going to pretend I didn't do this. She tries to regain her integrity by mm-hmm. refusing to dismiss her past. She takes it on board. But contemporary students find that as difficult as they find having sympathy for poor Emma Bovary. Mm-hmm. They think she's just foolish for spending all her money. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, that's a response that isn't entirely uncharacteristic of how James himself partly feels, right? I mean, it's certainly... Yeah. It's a mystery why she, uh, why she goes back, but he wants to... He doesn't want to explain everything. Uh, he, he, he respects the fact, I think... Um, even though I probably wouldn't agree with the decision um, that she's going to try to live out what she agreed to mm-hmm. um, rather rather than just try to cut and run. Right. It, it's amazing. You've written uh, uh, on on filmmakers, and I wouldn't even know. I mean, going back, uh, I want to get to Terrence Malick because I really want to discuss a little bit him because mm. I think he's really, um, really special. But I wanted to go back to some of these Westerns. So... From what I remember of your Hollywood Westerns book, you seem to be taking that these uh, uh, John Ford, uh, that they, that these uh, directors were actually talking about, you know, deep political issues. Yeah. Un- yeah in I, guise of sort of traditional classical narratives. Talk about some of those deep issues. I know that Liberty Valance is about myth and what kind of statehood. I mean, uh, what, what – uh, certainly well, – when I- when I started writing that book, um, I was I was actually working on issues in Rousseau about the whole question of political psychology. Um, huh. uh, most most uh, liberal political theory for the last 150, 200 years or so has been concerned with the problem of le- the legitimacy of state power. So, you know, a group of people has the monopoly on the forces of violence and they get to tell other people what to do. What What distinguishes you know, a group of people who exercise control over others from a legitimate exercise of power by the state. And that has something to do usually with consent or implied consent. But we know that in political life, people are willing to subscribe to demonstrate allegiance to a regime, not really at all on the basis of having been convinced of some argument in Locke or Kant or Hobbes or Hume. You know, 
uh, we, we need to try to figure out what what the actual uh, positive psychological forces are that contribute to a stable political regime. And Westerns are essentially the great ones about that. They're about the transition from a state of lawlessness and independent self-reliance, which is a great American ideal, to uh, no, a bourgeois market culture, banks, railroads, schools, school teachers, churches, and so forth. And the question is, uh, what, what goes on psychologically to make such a transition seem acceptable to people? And very often the answer is, uh, not very much. <laughs> they they resent it. They, uh, you know, their uh, the, the the transition is painful, and it leaves a residue of dissatisfaction and um, uh, regret that you can see in uh, the, at the end of uh, Liberty Valance, mm-hmm. where um, I mean, it would take a long time to summarize the whole yeah. the whole plot, but a, a woman who has having had a choice between this kind of pre-bourgeois, um, noble, honor culture man, John Wayne, and the representative of the order of law, Jimmy Stewart, she's chosen Jimmy Stewart. And at the end of her life, we can see in a little train ride that she's, uh, she, she's taking with her husband, that she regrets it. Mm. You can see in her face it's a wonderful moment in Ford. It's as if all the pain that uh, Freud would call the necessary repression, necessary for civil life, is in her face. You know that uh, it's almost as if the foundation of social order is a tragedy in itself. Mm-hmm. It's necessary, but in some way other other than necessary, negative, painful. Mm-hmm. Um, Thing we would want to avoid. So it, it seemed to me that there was no way in philosophy or social, sociology to have very good access to the dynamics of sort of the inner dynamics of the soul in this question of political submission mm-hmm. to an order other than your own, except by this, these kind of imaginative explore, explorations by, by Ford, Hawks, Anthony Mann, Bud Bedecker, Sam Fuller, people like that. Yeah, thinking about Ford is just visually it is connected to painting too, wouldn't you say? Oh God, yeah. Well, yeah. the The idea of, um, I mean, there are two things that his Monument Valley scenery does. One is, um, especially the way he photographs it, to convince us of how small we are, mm. how puny we are within the forces of nature, and uh, the other is to you know create a, a kind of notion of sublimity. Um, that the, uh, the the forces of nature are, are, have a kind of beauty and power uh, mm-hmm. that we're part of, that we're part of, that we that's right. we should be close to appreciate. That's right. That's most clear in his, his cinematography. So Absolutely. Visually, uh, yeah. it's it's um. I wondering, uh, going from westerns to film noir might be at first. Blush, a great change, a different kind of environment, different topics, subject, emotions. But, well, I, um, I actually considered those books a kind of uh, bookends uh, because uh, film, film noir is about what happens uh, psychologically when uh, or sort of just within the internal lives of people um, when the forces of order begin to break down. Westerns being about what happens when they begin to be set up. Mm-hmm. And wars are really about, in the post-war era, about um, a suspicion that the forces of order are corrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, in most wars, 
you know, uh, the police are either incompetent or corrupt. The city is run by bosses that are in the employ of criminals or uh, otherwise disreputable characters. Um, you can't really count on or trust uh, the legal order anymore. And then, then the question is, uh, what does life look like when you have to plan and execute, you know, actions? It looks like pickup on South Street, right? Or, or uh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, uh, pickup pick up on South Street is a, is a kind of uh, Sam Fuller uh, communist anti-communist movie, and you know, it kind of in an obvious sense. Um, but it's it's first of all, it's unbelievably beautifully photographed. Oh, yeah. It was the inspiration for Robert Bresson's uh, Pickpocket. That's right. Just because how beautiful the cinematography is. Um, but that, uh, that theme of this kind of uh, desolation and potential despair can be redeemed by love, mm. which is one of the themes in the, in the film. You know, Richard Widmark finally... Uh, yes. it's, it's funny you mentioned Pick Up on South Street. I've just been thinking about it oh. um, because I, I'm working on uh, Bresson. So I actually just you're saw writing, it. You're writing a book on Bresson. Yes, yeah. Well, that's, I'm going to be the first person to get that. You're a fan of Bresson? I'm more than a fan. I'm a fanatic. Yeah, me I'm too. Fanatic. It's impossible seen, to be I, anything else. I've probably seen Balthazar maybe 10 times. Uh, yeah, I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, uh, well, Bresson, isn't that a guy who made a, a movie about a donkey? And I said, yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the best films ever made. <laughs> if you don't cry at the end of that film, there's something wrong with you. And Mouchette. Oh God, that's as painful as uh, Rossellini's Open City or something. That that's a terribly painful movie. You do you mind talking about Rasson a little bit? Because I, you know, one of my oh, favorite of no. his, one of my favorite of his films is Four Nights of a Dreamer. Uh huh. I know that's that, that's I'm, that I've seen a long time. I'm working my way up to that. Um, it's it's a movie that's sort of lost, right? It's Rasson's lost film. It's kind of a, that's, yeah. yeah. Last weekend, I just saw The Trial of Joan of Arc, and I was blown away by that. I thought a movie that short that just uses the transcripts from the rehabilitation trial mm-hmm. uh, would be boring, but not, not in the hands of Bresson. It's absolutely gripping. Yep, that's right. And it raises this question that Country Priest raises, which is uh, what's the difference between uh, a serious and deep commitment and a nearly insane obsession? That's right. Uh, uh, which are very delicate lines sometimes, both in Country Priest and in uh, Joan of Arc. And that, that's one of the, the things I'm interested in. He's, he's exploring the modern reliance on conscience. Oh, interesting. You know, we, we, yeah, we, we tend to believe that the final touchstone for a moral life is our inner sense of right and wrong. And uh, Bresson believes that too, but he believes it can get out of control. Uh, oh. uh, with a kind of narcissism. Can you talk a little bit more about his worry? Because that's an interesting idea to, to clarify it. Go go a little deep because at first it's not quite. You're saying it's, it's a it's a. Is, is, well, he, is, is he concerned about artificial rules taking the place of an instinct? No, just in a way, in a way, just the opposite. He's oh, concerned God. about the reliance on something like an inner voice. Huh. Uh, as the ultimate authority in what we ought to do. Um, I mean, this, this is especially true of, of religious commitment. I mean, Bresson is, Bresson is in some ways 
a religious filmmaker, but that that issue touches so many other issues. Mm-hmm. You don't have to actually be a believer to appreciate his movies, but he is he is I think worried about um, how beings so subject like like we are to self deception mm-hmm. and self aggrandizement and self inflation and self protectedness how we ever manage to be convinced that what we feel to be here I stand, I can do no other, you know, kind of ultimate line in the sand morally is trustworthy because it's sometimes right on the verge of being a kind of self-indulgent narcissism as if you are the king of the moral world. And when we lose a kind of humility uh, about our convictions, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we become, you know, obsessive narcissists. Uh, Joan of Arc has a lot of integrity in that movie. She's oh, yeah. um, she's really quite admirable, quite beautiful as well. And her resistance to what is even worse mm-hmm. than the danger she represents, which is this corrupt order of uh, the Anglophile priests right. uh, at the Sorbonne who tried her. Anyway, this is, this is a very specific topic for your listeners who might not have seen the movie, but but it's, I, it's I, this I, general theme. On our go podcast, ahead. we go we go into the weeds on things because it is an arts podcast, and and I, I try to okay. I try for it to be unique among podcasts, both in how we go into things and also the diversity of um, topics covered. I I want to stay on Bresson a little bit more. Are there other films that demonstrate this danger, where it's clearly either in the narrative or in the uh, characters who um, are led astray, like a, fa- a false well, voice, or yeah. I mean, take take the issue of grace, which is one of the dominant themes in his movie. Uh, maybe maybe my favorite movie by him is sort of Bresson before he became Bresson, uh, Les Dames de Bordeaux, yeah, the, the great, ladies of the, yeah. It's a great great movie. Yeah. Um, so so here's here's the question about that movie. Um, at the end. When the um, the woman is, is is sort of dying of shame mm-hmm. after she's been exposed at at the wedding by the evil manipulator who runs the whole show of deception, um, there's a transformation, a moment in which because her her new husband um, reaffirms his love for her, she's transformed. She doesn't die, and there's a there looks like a moment of grace, mm-hmm. you know that. Nothing we could have predicted that the husband um, comes around. What mm. everything we've seen of him so far is a kind of superficial, banal, lazy, thoughtless guy. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, he's not. So, what Brisson very often investigates is what what is this all of a sudden phenomenon where a life turns around. I mean, it's most obvious in, in instances of conversion, but right. those happen in, in secular life all the time. Yeah, they do. Where the same thing at the end of Pickpocket, for example. That's right. Where, where he sort of comes out of himself. That's right. Uh, uh, so uh, same thing in uh, Mar- Man Mar- Condemned to Man Escape, where Man Escape, um, the guy the guy has to make a sudden decision whether to trust right. this this boy who has you know, uh, both uniforms on. It could be a German spy, it could be a French resistance writer, and in order for him to try to escape, he has to make this sudden decision to trust him, the way people do in ordinary life when they form romantic relationships. They, they, they have to trust something 
in them that allows them to believe the other person is trust. What is that? Is what Bresson is asking. And how could it be separated from so many other near pathologies in our in our psychology? That's right. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Well, I'm wondering too, which brings me to Malik, because there must be some connection there. And I, I know I'm tempted to ask you about Malik you haven't written about because he's made some films in the past year. Uh, a Hidden Life, of course, and Night of Cops, and some more recent. I'm, I'm curious your, your response to some of his more recent work. Um, well, I'm a big fan of Hidden Life. Um, and the, the thing that connects him to uh, Bresson and other filmmakers that, that Bresson inspired, like the, the Dardenne brothers, who are another, another yeah. favorite uh, of filmmakers of mine, um, is, is this concept of so called slow cinema. That's that uh, the director Paul Schrader wrote about in his book on transcendental style in cinema. Bresson, Ozu, Carl Dreyer, um, long takes, That's right. um, unhurried uh, photography That's right. uh, that will linger for a long time on things like empty doorways or stairwells or fields of blowing wheat. Or, you know, Ma- uh, Malik is the same way. Um, I mean, he's making films that have to make money, but he isn't, he's like the Darden brothers, uncompromising about the style of the movie. And that style fits into this general notion of, uh, you know, slow cinema, cinema that asks for. I I definitely think so. Although I think he has his own, again, he has his own totally unique Malick personal touch. That's, uh, you know, and and so talk more because, because Hidden Life is a recent release and, Many uh, of our listeners may have seen it. What um, what are the themes that that film is grappling with? Uh, there's many that what yeah. comes to mind. Uh, well, again, it's interesting because it's uh, it's connected to Bresson in a thematic way as well. So you have a man who's a conscientious objector um, and who's about to ruin essentially his whole life, mm. uh, his, his children, his his wife. Um, how does he know he's right? Ah. Hmm. I mean, the thing about so these describing these as questions that the film raises is that that that, that implies that the films have something like an answer, hmm. and the only the only kind of answer we get is you know two and a half hours of living with this this man. That's right. Uh, there's, there's nothing you can really point to as, well, he has this principle and he has a good argument for it. And uh, you know, talking about limitations of philosophy again, I mean, a philosopher would just ask, well, is he, is he justified in believing that conscientious objection is the way to go here? Well, that, 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 he's, not, he's not doing it because he's convinced of an argument. So, so why does he so, think? So you're saying there's an absolute consistency between the style of the film and it, the way it proceeds philosophically, that is, it's, yeah, in, that sense, it's in that sense opposed to propositional thinking. Yeah. Or just, yeah. And the other thing is, it's just the same thing as Tree of Life. Um, oh, wow. These are, these are also um, 
very many sections of the movie are projections of the protagonist's point of view. Okay. Like the the scenes where the main character in uh, Hidden Life plays with his children, and you know, it's extraordinarily idyllic, yeah. beautiful scene, laughing children, laughing wife. That, you know, clearly that's not a realist depiction of his Sunday afternoon. There's a way that Malick often, and it's very particularly true in Tree of Life, projects the point of view of a character as it, it's really like what in literature they call free indirect discourse. That's right. Um, where uh, you think you're reading a third person narration, but you're actually reading it from the point of view of the character. Yeah, it is Malick. a dramatic person. Malick does that. And that connects to Henry James, of course, right? And some of the Yeah, absolutely. I, I know that you've written on Proust. I mean, I can't get out of get out of this episode. You've written twice on that I know of on Proust, an early book in um uh Well, I have, I have three pieces on Proust. One on becoming who one is, one on the problem of jealousy, one on the problem of subjectivity in Proust. I mean, it's it's a big topic, Proust. Um <laughs> what, what, what that's the top of the map yeah. well I mean you, he certainly would you say he's one of the best uh, writers on the subject of jealousy or at least among the the, mo- the most uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no one even remotely close okay. the shadow of what uh, um, why um, why does Proust or the narrator because he also has complications on who's speaking in the relation to Proust but mm-hmm. why does the narrator believe that love is inseparable from jealousy uh, and why is everybody in the novel so consumed by jealousy? It's a, I mean, one way of answering that would be they, they're just peculiarly insecure psychological characters that have no general significance at all. We're just reading the story of some effete, uh, lazy, wealthy French people in the first part of the 20th century mm-hmm. uh, whose lives are so... Uh, shallow and insecure, and they're such narcissists that uh, they're obsessed with the idea that their beloved is not being faithful to them. I, I, well, yeah, that's that's a pretty stupid way to read a novel with the ambition of Proust. He's 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 actually trying to tell us something about the dynamics of human love and what's what's potentially dangerous about the dynamics of love: the role of fantasy, that's right. the the difficulty in in presenting yourself to the other as you are rather than as you want to be seen, mm-hmm. uh, the inevitable um, anxiety about whether you're acknowledged in the way you think you want to be acknowledged by the other source of jealousy right there. Yeah. Um, why, why betrayal by another or even attentiveness by another to someone else can provoke this anxiety in you, how difficult it is to um, know that another loves you. I mean, those things are pursued by Proust, again, not in a thematic or, as you said before, a propositional way, but um, by virtue of thousands of pages in which we become ever more familiar with, without even really being able to propositionally lay out everything we've come to know. We become experientially familiar with a character that is credible, and we learn something from that credibility about the human condition in general. Well, I'm I'm wondering, too, uh, it, it uh, there's a there's a, a bit of a Hegel Renaissance going on now. You've just delivered a paper on Hegel today. I think it was on YouTube, uh, a recent conference. Um, uh huh. Yeah, there is there is a, the situation is very different 
than when I started out in the early 1970s. Um, <laughs> that changed. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Writing on Hegel then was like uh, writing on Madame Blavatsky or something. It was just considered, um, you know, not not worthy of serious philosophical interest. Um, but then a, a number of things began to change. The, the level of German scholarship in the post-war period. Um, changed. It became much more philosophical. There's, I mean, there's a long story involved there, but that was my main formative interest was the people in the Heidelberg School mm-hmm. um, in the 1960s. Um, but then Charles Taylor published an important book when he was an Oxford Don for the time he was at Oxford. Uh, and he had a, yeah, he had a high reputation right. in uh, analytic philosophy because of his book on action, okay. on human behavior. Uh, and he treated Hegel quite sympathetically as a political and social philosopher. Mm-hmm. So that part of his program was kind of during the era of communitarianism when there were critiques of liberalism and the limitations of liberalism starting to be made. Hegel fit right into that. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then I published Hegel's Idealism in 1989, uh, which tried to rehabilitate the, the theoretical dimensions of Hegel's project as as much more intelligent than a kind of theological metaphysics, uh, and that 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 caught on. That 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 uh, that inspired a lot of you know critical reaction, but a lot of discussion. And um, then um, very very important people in Anglophone philosophy, like John McDowell and Robert Brandom, uh-huh. um, began writing on Hegel, and uh, that made it. I mean, it's 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 still he's still a marginal figure in Anglophone philosophy, but. Yes. Um, it's now possible for people to write dissertations on Hegel without being suspected of uh, some sort of occult insanity. Well, Hegel himself was a very uh, – if you, if you were faced with a room full of people who had never read a word of Hegel yeah, and you know that Hegel was really valuable, revolutionized philosophy in the West – Mm-hmm. And you wanted to impart that through Hegel's art. What text would you suggest they start with? Is it, or is that a, in other words, if they had to start with a book or what do you, what would you? Well, the difficulty I tell my students the difficulty with Hegel is there's no shallow end of the pool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You, you, you wherever you go is deep, but I would suggest they start with the introduction to the lectures on aesthetics. Ah, okay. Those are. Those are among the most readable lectures in Hegel, and they're actually quite exciting. Mm-hmm. In that Hegel is sort of responsible for um, shifting the task of criticism from one based on evaluation and taste to a philosophy of art mm-hmm. informing criticism. Um, also responsible for the way we teach the art in our colleges and universities because we teach it historically. And that, that was due to hate that we should, we should view artworks in their historical period in connection with their previous and successive moments. Um, but you also get a sense of, of how important for Hegel history, which he introduced into philosophy, that philosophy, I mean, for the first time with Hegel had a kind of diagnostic role what does it mean that we live the way we live and are we living the way we ought to be living? Uh, what can philosophy tell us mm-hmm. about, about that? Not, not just whether you know, we're subscribing to the right philosophical norm, but what does it mean to live this way? 
how do we find it meaningful to live in a you know market oriented consumer culture mm-hmm. with a, a you know sort of flailing democracy at this point what um, what sense can we make out of that what what yeah, that diagnostic role for philosophy uh, it, it 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 helps in a way understand meaningfulness in an age past and present um, is something Hegel introduced into philosophy that I think is quite crucial. Mm-hmm. Well, applying those questions to Douglas Sirk. Now, Douglas Sirk was making films in the 50s. Yeah. And of course, he's associated with, you know, stylistic things that are considered unique to that era. Both yeah. The color and the acting. But, but I, I suspect I, this is the one book of yours I have not read, unfortunately. Um, so I'm going to ask you, uh, what is – Douglas Sirk say, or what, what, what are those questions apply? What does Douglas Sirk say about not just the 50s, but about 2021? Yeah, well, um, Sirk in the 1950s made, with Universal Pictures, melodramas. Um, and melodramas are, in a way, the kind of bourgeois society version of tragedy. Um, we, we have melodrama, not, not classical tragedies. Uh, that is to say, they're domestic, they're either family romances, um, relationships between parents and children, or they're um, romantic melodramas in which the emotional lives of people caught up in romantic relationships that are very important to them uh, come a cropper. They, they have all kinds of difficulties and tragedies, and, I mean, you know, just disasters in that sense. Um, and Cirque um, was particularly interested in the kind of uh, quiet suffering that is, uh, uh, underlies a great deal of daily life in um, even upper-middle-class bourgeois societies. Um, melodramas deal with the intersection of, especially Cirque's, these two fundamental human needs, the desire to love and be loved, and the desire for some status, some standing, some measure of respect from others. And a lot of his films help us to see why the way we live now, where those two things are very important, often necessarily conflict. That the ambition necessary to achieve a certain kind of status often involves compromises, self-deceit, uh, uh, you know, sort of cutting corners in a way that makes a kind of integrity and authenticity in romantic relationships, which immediately get perverted by the power of money and influence and status, uh, very difficult, very painful. So on the one hand, it's focused on, you know, the emergence of a consumer society in the 1950s, but that, that society hasn't gone away. And if anything, the, 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 the sort of problems of, I know, what, what one calls spiritual meaning mm-hmm. in a consumer society are just as critical Today. Today. I mean, we're sort of surrounded by deaths of despair, opioid addiction, alcohol addiction, um, dissatisfied marriages, single, you know, a, a lot of uh, 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 new arrangements for the having and raising of children that might not be ideal, let's say. Um, so uh, I, I think the, the, the Cirque. Is, is you know basically considered somebody who made so-called women's pictures, yeah. but uh, you know Cirque himself was probably the most educated Hollywood director ever in Max Ophuls. Cirque, Cirque was uh, uh, studied with Panofsky. He was uh, he was one of the in the 30s. He was the leading 
avant-garde theater director in Germany and in Europe. Uh, he was the main director of Bertolt Brecht, um, tremendously well-read, well-educated, um, and became fascinated by the American middle class. That's right. He said, he said once in an interview that uh, he was fascinated by it because it's out of that milieu that Hitler arose in Germany. And huh. uh, he hadn't accepted it there, and he wondered whether the situation was ultimately going to be similar here. He was, he was a few decades early, right? I mean, that's kind of fun. Yeah, but he wasn't wrong, was he? He wasn't wrong, unfortunately. I mean, you feel it. I don't know. And this, <laughs> I, this, this is really tied ex- to this this, mm-hmm. this issue of, of how we get at you know, kind of collectively felt human psychology, especially this, uh, notions like resentment and disappointment and bitterness about one's life mm-hmm. that are fueling so much of the rage and anger we see. Mm-hmm. How do we understand that? I mean, understand them not just merely as physiological things in the brain, which too often some scientists want to reduce them to, right? But also historically and also right, in a more, you might say, comprehensive uh, manner, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, these, these, uh, these experiences people have are so complex that, that some way of understanding just what it's like for them to experience them, in what context, in what relation to other people, out of what origins, given what socioeconomic class, what it's like to experience a world in which you find yourself excluded, without a place, homeless in effect. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I mean, you could you could say it like that, and it sounds like you're talking about a snapshot, but. You know, even a two-hour film or an 800-page novel, you're, you're just scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. But at least you're scratching the surface. Well, that's better than not tackling it at all, right? And not, not even exactly, exactly, exactly. And it's so unappreciated. I mean, by by most people, these Hollywood films are considered just commercial vehicles designed to entertain people. But um, these people were serious. These directors. Well, Douglas Sirk for, is pretty serious. I mean, if you look. If you look at written on the wind or, or, or oh, all that having the yeah. walls, I mean that that's a those are those are yeah. Quite yeah, well, I hope you enjoy the book when you see it. I mean, I don't know if you're a Cirque fan or not, but I hope yeah. it turns you around. I am a Cirque. Oh, good. So, so not reading your book is not due to my lack of interest in Cirque. Okay, good. It's due to the twenty four seven, you know, twenty four hours in the day type of thing, and you know, read one thing. And, oh, of course, and of course, of course. <laughs> I mean, I'm most excited about your Brisson book. When when is that uh, slated to? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to take my time with this one, so probably another two years. Oh, excellent! I'm going to teach him in the spring. Oh, you are. Yeah. Then I'm going to spend all of uh, all of next year just mulling it over. I'm, I'm also interested I'm, in the I'm the idea. To of impress upon you that the underrated. I want you to re- rehabilitate Four Nights of a Dreamer. That's such a just okay. Yeah, film. it's good you mentioned that. And that's one I've seen in a long time, and I'll go back and watch it now. Um, I like the later. I like L'Argent the best. Uh, Money, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but my I think my favorite film is Les Dames de Barbellon. Uh, that that is just such a that's a that's a much more typical cinema, not cinematography as you put it. Right. That that really is a movie. And he after that uh, and the Angels of Sin. Uh, he decided he didn't want to make movies anymore. He wanted to do cinematographs. Cinematographs. Uh, and then he made Diary of a Country Priest and uh, um, Man Escaped and Pickpocket, and they became very, very different films. The one I can't really I mean, get Le- into. Le- 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 I mean, you could almost drop somebody in it 
and I ask him who directed it, and some people would you could you could almost think it could be George Stevens or George Cooper for you know that's, that's yeah those, those first those first films yeah those yeah. first films. I'm really interested in the reaction of the students because okay. it's slow cinema. And, you know, after Spielberg sort of ruined the movie's uh, attention span acceptance, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm wondering if they're going to put up with it. Yeah. You know, he'll, he'll shoot a guy walking up a set of stairs and just hold the camera on the stairs for four or five, six, mm-hmm. seven, eight, nine, ten seconds. Mm-hmm. I don't know if students are going to put up with that. I hope so. I taught melodrama two years ago, three years ago. And I did you, taught, did you, ever you know, teach now Voyager. Pardon? Did you ever teach now Voyager? Yes, that was one of the films. Yeah. Okay. I taught uh, Caught, Reckless Moment, Now Voyager, uh, Stella Dallas, oh, wow. Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, what else? Uh, and then Cirque, All That Heaven Allows, and Written on the Wind, and Imitation of Life. And what was the mood of the class, or what were the um, essays like, or what were the um, really good? Like? I mean, at, at, you know, at at one of the showings, at Imitation of Life, at one of the showings, there were two students in the front row that were just weeping so uncontrollably. I had to stay and make sure they were all right. Wow! <laughs> I took that as just a great confirmation that I should be showing students these movies. Same thing when I when I when I taught Hitchcock. Um, Interesting. You know, you, 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 your, their first reaction is, yeah, you just, you're putting all that in the movie. That's not there. You're just entertaining thrillers. And uh, I, 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 I consider it one of my jobs to disabuse them of that notion. You know, look, these are serious objects worthy of intense, right. repeated doing. I just rewatched Shadow of a Doubt by Thornton Wilder and Hitchcock the other day. Uh, that, that was Hitchcock's personal favorite. And my favorite of his films, actually. Yeah, well, there's nothing you can touch Vertigo as far as I'm concerned. Right, of course, but I'm just saying other than Vertigo, Shadow of a Doubt. Do you ever teach that particular film? Yeah, yeah. I I have a chapter on it in a collection of mine called Film Thought. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very, very fond of that film. I mean, the the uncanny uh, closeness of Charlie and Charles is, I think, the most interesting thing in the movie. I'm curious how students respond to Joseph Cotton. You know, what a... I mean, the, first of all, it's well, a performance, a piece of acting, but also as a person and the character. Just really... Yeah, challenging. yeah. The, 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 the funny thing is that Hitchcock, man, I mean, he's really an odious... I mean, he's a serial okay. killer. He's, sure. he's, he's willing to kill, kill his niece. Right. Um, but... Don't you think the film creates a kind of, if not sympathy for him, but at least some sort of understanding? I mean, the reference to the the accident when he was a child, and then um, the the need his sister has for him, um, and you know, it, it, it's not you know sort of Simon Legree kind of yeah villain. There's a psychological depth to the character, especially given how much Charlie, the niece admires him, is close to him. Oh, yeah, Hitchcock's raising the question, you know, yeah. she's, and her basic attitude is this town is dull, boring, this yeah. bourgeois life I'm living is. It's really the same attitude he has. And she's sort of this, confronted. This, this, this is the Thornton Wilder part of the script, of the film. 
Because Wilder, yeah, well, Wilder is always trying to rehabilitate or make us re-examine things that are considered dull or conformist and yeah, try to see yeah. if it's what all ta- our town is all about, right, after all, in part. Right. But, right. Um, well, Third Wilder quit as screenwriter because he could see that what Hitchcock was doing was, was actually saying, yeah, the town is crap. <laughs> it's just, but but it doesn't mean you should be a serial killer. <laughs> right. You know, the ending of it, the the deep irony of the ending where the FBI agent is saying, you know, we just go a little crazy sometimes, but it's all basically good. And that just rings with such irony at the end of the movie. Yeah. Uh, These people are completely incapable of dealing with a character like the Joseph Cotton character. They're they're naive, weak. Oh, yeah. Unexperienced, you know, they, 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 Thornton Wilder is wrong. <laughs> These forms. He's certainly wrong about in that in that instance, Chad. I have to agree with that. Um, yeah, Lives of quiet desperation. I still, you know? I still love Wilder. I think he's underrated, and I think. Well, I think oh yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that he's a great doubt. I mean, I think that um, in that sense, Shadow of Doubt is a movie way ahead of its time, right? And so there's something about I don't know. There's something about that film that seems. Um, I don't know the violence of it and, and the frightening aspect to it is, is um well the conversation they have in the bar when you know if you tear on the facade you see these grunting uh, animals <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. The, he gives Charlie of what what lies behind the facade of civility in bourgeois life uh, is is about as ugly a speech as there is in all the film that's right. So we're going to have to wait till 2024 for your Brisson book. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I have a couple of other things working on too, but uh, I'm really, really excited about it. But what else are you working on in addition to Brisson? There's a couple of other things. Are they on painting or? Well, I'm working. I I just finished. I'm just finishing a book on uh, Heidegger's critique of uh, the German idealism tradition uh, called uh, the culmination. Heidegger thinks. Most of Western philosophy culminated, that means came to a completion after which there is nothing worth doing more mm-hmm. with Hegel. And I worked all my life on this tradition, on Kant, yeah. Fichte, Schelling, Hegel. Sure. And I decided before I quit writing, I should, um, I should take account of why Heidegger thinks this tradition misses what's essential in philosophy and its culmination is um, the end of at least metaphysical philosophy. So I, 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 I got a grant, a fellowship to take a year off in 2019-20. And then, of course, we all went remote. Yep. So I, we, were, we were living on our, uh, our, in our farmhouse in upstate New York. And so we stayed there. So I, I was able to work on this for two years straight every day, except for the days I had to be Zooming during the teaching. So I got a lot of work done. I bet you did with well, that paper. That brand new paper came out of that. I got to hear you read it and and Hegel today, yeah. and Hegel today conference. So that's part of that same part of that same yeah. on yeah. Heidegger. Yeah. Well, what what yeah. are your impressions of some of the more radical? I don't know if that's that's fair, but you know, there's many um, contemporary philosophers who are who are deeply influenced by Hegel, but aren't immediately identified as such. Yeah, I, I guess Judith Butler comes to mind for some reason. I don't know. Sure. What, yeah, her first book was on Hegel. Have you, have you have you have you done seminars with Judith Butler or have had any any? Um, no, no. I just I, re, I read her stuff. I, I think I, I reviewed her first Hegel book for the Phil Review. Reviewed it very positively. Okay. I like that book. Yeah. Um, 
uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, you can put it, if I were speaking to an, just an exclusively American audience, I would put it in terms of, of American pragmatism. What, what Hegel began to convince philosophers of was that various so-called philosophical questions, you know, what is the mind-body problem, the, 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 uh, the existence of universals, the existence of God, uh, is there a moral law? These, uh, these questions um, don't just sort of float around in a platonic, rarefied, abstract heaven. Um, we, they always arise out of a certain context and need. Uh, so that we always have to, this is the way Rorty would put it, we always have to ask, um, what do we expect answering these questions to do for us? Uh-huh. Uh, how within one historical period does a question become so significant and so prominent, and then in another historical period it's completely forgotten? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? What is what is that? It's about discontinuity. It's, yeah, the dis- yeah, something. yeah, yeah. So I think Hegel began to convince a lot of later philosophers like Marx or Nietzsche that philosophy had to reconsider its its the, the origins of its interests mm-hmm. and not just assume that these questions are important in themselves. Because they're they're different questions in different ages mm-hmm. and they have different contexts of of use and pragmatism is like that. We want to know what the answers to these questions will do for us and is what they'll do for us important. Yes. And so a lot of the later, that's certainly true of Heidegger. It's certainly true of Derrida. It's certainly true of Foucault. Mm -hmm. It's certainly true of Levinas. So all of these, all of these people were convinced of that, but they were, they were also convinced that Hegel had not pursued that question properly because he tried to, in a way, come up with a system that mm. transcended these uh, parochial, historical, existential contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the first thing you had to do in philosophy was overcome Hegel. Okay. That, that's sort of what I'm interested in now, the shadow of Hegel over the European tradition on the question of finitude, what philosophy can't do. Huh. I'm tempted before we, all good things come to an end, even even this, and, and, and I'm bit, before before we conclude, I'm wondering if there's anything that comes into your consciousness that you want to say either about Hegel or teaching or anything we've discussed that you think is important to mention that we've forgotten or that we've, um, that we've, uh, um, well, you know, it's kind of, it would be kind of banal, but I, yeah, it's very important. I, I just, I'm quite worried about the fate of books. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Say more about that. I, I, well, um, from from the viewpoint of academic philosophy, what I do is, uh, I mean, apart from all the stuff we've been talking about in aesthetics and in film literature and art history, um, I'm considered a person who writes commentaries on old books. That's true. And, and uh, that's becoming less and less important um, within philosophy itself. Um, I mean, uh, there, there's such pressure on, I mean, this is true of classicists who work on literary texts from the ancient period and um, German, French, Italian, Chinese, Japanese specialists in the great books of their tradition. That's right. uh, I, I'm, I'm quite concerned, uh, mostly because I think um, the way in which the books are presented um, is often so professionally narrow that it isn't clear enough to students um, why it's absolutely crucial when they have these four years of their lives mm. with an enormous privilege to just simply to think. Yes. Why it's important that their thinking be directed by the, the, the people who've thought the greatest thoughts. So 
But my, my general worry is that the, the kind of work I do and the books I write and the classes I teach in another generation will be, will be quite rare. Huh. Now, when you say rare, it'll be, it'll be seen as now we treat Batias if somebody's teaching Bodhi, Bodhi or, or somebody from that era, something, something that's um, – or Herodotus. Well, there would be a really very, very heavy pressure to make everything speak to uh, contemporary social and political concerns, which is important. Yeah. But it can't be the whole thing. And uh, so I think a more um, – it will be it will be increasingly difficult to find an audience for a course on Henry James, for example. Hmm. Do you have a, Do you have a favorite Henry James novel? The Ambassadors. The Ambassadors. Okay. Yeah, I think I see James in Strether. Oh, interesting. More than in, more than in any other character. You haven't written on the Sacred Fount. No, I don't. Uh, yeah, I have a one chapter in that book on the short stories, but yeah, like you're saying, uh, world enough in time, twenty four seven. Right, but Sacred Sacred Found is probably his most radical book, don't you think? In many, yeah, it's way out. Yeah, yeah, it's it's almost like a science fiction story. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I really like what you say about books. I mean, I think as long as there are uh, people doing what you're doing there in, in Chicago, I think. Um, I think that, that it assures that it won't be too rare or so rare. I, I hope. I, I mean, your pod, I'm sure your podcast will help. Yes, I do. And I, and I think books, you know, I, I, I always have a sense that people say books are, are back, right? You always see time to time these headlines. Yeah. They might be yeah. and superficial, but, you know, people are starting, the kids are starting to read again or is a new interest, renewed interest in books. We'll have to see. I don't know. Well, we'll have to see. I, I don't. Uh, I mean, I have a very privileged position here at the University of Chicago because we get extraordinary students who come here be- because they want to be challenged by uh, great works of the mind, that kind of thing. Mm. So we have a we we have a uniquely intellectual kind of college population. But um, and I, uh, yeah, it, that hasn't changed. So maybe I'm being overly pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I, I think the wealthy private colleges and universities will do fine for the next few generations. It's the uh, it's the, the state universities, the community colleges, the places where the majority of Americans get educated, not these, these little bastions of privilege. Um, it, it, there there I, I, is where my worry is. Mm-hmm. Well yeah I I, I, share, I share some of that concern. I mean I'm these things are always always idiosyncratic, you know? And they're cyclical. So, you know, it may be a phase. My wife keeps telling me, just relax, it's a phase. Relax. Yeah, it's a phase. Don't be so uh, down. Don't be so depressed. It's all coming back. We just have to work through this <laughs> well, that's 40 or 50 years. I got through saying when I saw the headline, books are back, you know? Yeah, books ever left. Yeah, but yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I'd take a little more convincing before I believe that. I mean, <laughs> you know, hard books, hard books are not back. Right. James, late James is not back. Faulkner is not back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ezra Pound is not back. Uh, Robert Pippin, I really, I really thank you for your generosity to spend this time on our show. Oh, of course. Uh, I'm glad you. I enjoyed our, I enjoyed our conversation. I'm glad I did it. And I very much look forward to your Bresson book and um, and future writing. If you send me uh, if you send me your email, I'll put you on the list and make sure you get a copy when it's right off the press. Thank you very much.
Happy holidays okay. to you as well. Happy holidays. Thank Bye-bye. You. I don't like goodbyes, so I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you. Thank you.